0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
2: Saturday, August 27th, 2022. I'm Kevin Cork. The Biden White House calls for hundreds of billions of dollars in federal student loan debt relief for tens of millions of Americans. But why should those who didn't rack up the bills in the first place have to chip in to pay for them, especially when they didn't get any of the benefits? This is going
0: to create fundamental brokenness in the university and the college system, and it's going to lead to higher and higher and higher costs for years to come if we don't nip this in the bud. I'm Jared Halpern. The U.S. could restart a nuclear deal with Iran.
3: Is it smart foreign policy?
1: Every day we don't have a deal in place, Iran gets closer to a nuclear weapon. And that's an unacceptable outcome.
3: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
2: for someone else's education. That's what critics say is really at stake in the president's plan to forgive $10,000 in federal student loan debt for millions of Americans. But while the debate over fairness rages on in theory, the cost of the plan is all too real, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's just the beginning, says King's College professor and Fox News contributor Brian Brenberg. There are a lot of angles to this. The one that stands out most to me just right
0: away from a gut level is the idea that you've got a huge population of Americans who made a lot of sacrifices in their lives for their kids, for themselves, in order to both take these loans on and then pay them off over time. And that one really sticks with people because they just feel like Why did I do that if we're now in a situation in this country where the federal government is saying we're going to wipe those loans away? That's the moral hazard problem, and that's that's an economic issue because it affects how people think about college going forward. So any young person who's thinking about enrolling in college, anybody who's in college right now who's accumulating that debt is saying to themselves, well, why in the world should I have to pay back any loans I take or any loans I have? at the moment. And that becomes a huge question in this country for policymakers. What are you going to do? If you forgave this loan once, you're going to have to do it again. And that gets to the cost issue. So we're getting these numbers right now. They're saying this is going to cost between $500 billion, $600 billion. Some people on the low end are saying more like $400 billion. But if we develop the precedent of forgiving loans because we think students need it, and that continues, Kevin. Those costs balloon in an extraordinary way, and this becomes now trillions of dollars over time, not the half trillion we're talking about right now.
2: Let me play devil's advocate, at least from a policy perspective. What I hear from Democrats is no one seems to have a problem when we're doling out tax cuts. No one seems to have a problem when we're spending literally trillions of dollars all over the globe helping other countries and other economies and frankly even here domestically we spend a great deal on programs and on policies that may not have the sort of impact if you will Brian on the American people what do you say to people who say don't worry we have the money we have the capacity to do this without upsetting the apple cart
0: well I'd say a couple things one is we don't have the money. <laughs> we're, we're $30 trillion in debt. We do not have the money. We are borrowing it. What we're doing is is hoping, against hope in my view, that that's, that tab's somehow not going to come due. So we don't have the money. But I would also say it's a very bad argument in support of student debt transfer, or cancellation, or whatever people are calling it. It's a bad argument to say, well, we've done bad things in the past, so let's do another bad thing. I mean, the the fact is I have a lot of beef with a lot of what we spend money on as a government i think there's a ton of waste and that's one of the reasons i don't want to see another program that'll end up transferring money to people who number one contractually should pay it back but but number two when a lot of this money is going to go to people who are upper middle income individuals remember the income cap on this is one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. wait a sec why are we handing out money To them, I hear a lot of Democrats making the tax cut argument here, but that's a very, very different beast. When you're talking about tax cut, what you're saying is you want people to keep more of the money that they generate, more of the money that they earn, more of the wealth that they create. That's a very different proposition than saying you want a huge chunk of America to pay off the debt that somebody else has incurred. To me, that's an apples to oranges comparison. I think it's a red herring. What we should be focusing on here is the justice issue. Democrats love to talk about justice. So let's talk about justice. What's the justice of taking someone else's debt commitment, obligation, and throwing it on top of somebody who had no say in that choice and never even had the chance to enjoy the benefit of that education that that original dead odor had. To me, there's a real justice issue here, and I think that's what a lot of people are latching on to right now.
2: That's precisely what I've heard from the vast majority of people who contact me online, whether it's on Twitter uh, or other platforms. They say, listen, Uh, And I can use my own family as an example. I come from a family of butchers. My grandfather was a butcher. Mm. My dad was a butcher. Uh, They didn't take out student loans, (laughs) okay? Right. They went to work, and, and they did their jobs, and it's unfair. Here's what I hear, Brian. It's unfair to ask the cop, the nurse, uh, the bricklayer, the construction woman uh, who's out there working in the hot sun each and every day, who didn't have the advantage of going to college, maybe didn't want to go, maybe didn't have the opportunity to go, to have them chip in to, in effect, pay back the, the loan for, I don't know, some kid who went to Bowdoin, just seems incredibly unfair. Well, it it is. And... The person who chose not to go to college did
0: a calculation. They did a cost-benefit analysis, and they said, what am I good at? What do I want to do in life? Where can I get value for the time that I spend? And they they made the choice to do something else. They made the choice to apprentice, to get into a job and start working right away. All they're asking is that college students be asked to do the same thing. You've got to do the cost-benefit analysis. You made the decision to go to college. Nobody forced you to do that. That's a choice. That's a privilege we have in a wealthy society to get to do that. We need young people, we need their parents to do the cost-benefit analysis, to make a decision about whether the investment they're going to make, the debt they're going to take on, is going to be worth it when they finish. If we don't do that, Kevin, what we're really doing is enabling a lot of very bad decisions among our youngest uh, population in this country. Instead of having them think through, what should I do in life? Where can I create value? They're just going to make the automatic choice to go to college because, hey, the government's throwing a bunch of money at me. And I'll tell you, as a college professor, I'm actually – I think college professors should be more against this debt cancellation or transfer than anybody. Because we should want our institutions to be able to make the best case possible that if you come – I teach at the King's College. You come to the King's College, you spend money at the King's College, we're going to give you an education that's going to pay off. And even if you got to take debt out, you're going to be able to pay that off because we're preparing you for the future. If we live in a world where people don't even care about that because the cost essentially to them is nothing, we lose our competitive advantage, Kevin. Good colleges lose their competitive advantage. Because they, nobody, the the people attending college don't care anymore what it costs, because it's somebody else's problem, not their own problem. So this, to me, is fundamental. This is going to create fundamental brokenness in the university and the college system, and it's going to lead to higher and higher and
2: higher costs
0: for years to come if we don't nip this in the bud.
2: Understand this as well. There is a legal argument uh, against something like this. In fact, we heard Nancy Pelosi herself say the president lacks the authority to forgive student debt. We've also heard others say this is something that clearly will need to be challenged. And there are also those, uh, Brian, who suggest that this is going to cost taxpayers more than $2,000 Ahead, I mean, that's a lot of money, again, this idea of funding someone else's education. I just want to ask you this, too, while I'm thinking about it. One of the things that I'm always interested in is, what's the long-term prospect of doing something like this? I'm a policy guy. You're a policy guy, as well. There are those here in Washington who suggest that the president is, in effect, buying votes with this move. Is that cynical or is there something to that? (laughs) Well, I don't like to be cynical, but let's let's
0: just think about it a little bit. Here we are at the end of August in a big election year. The sitting president's party seems to be in hot water and he's got the most energetic part of his party telling him he's got to do student debt forgiveness in order to win this election. You know, you can't help but be cynical. I think this is Obviously, a ploy to get voters supercharged to vote for Democrats. And it has huge long term implications. You're so right to bring that up. What this really is, Kevin, is a big step closer to a socialized higher education system in this country. Because again, once you've forgiven student debt, that expectation is going to be there for every generation. Every generation, every new class is going to say, You forgave my older brother or sister's debt, why aren't you forgiving mine? And you're you're gonna keep hearing calls for bigger amounts. So right now it's ten grand, twenty grand if you got a Pell Grant. Well, you've got a lot of folks out there on the left calling for fifty grand. What's the argument against fifty grand if you've already done ten or twenty? So in effect, what happens is you you've created this claim that all college students are gonna have, and they're gonna say, you did it once, you gotta do it again. And at some point, if we keep going down that road, what you end up with is a federal government that says, you know what, we're just gonna pay for it for everybody. Everybody's going to be funded by the federal government. And at that point, you now have a socialized higher education system. And I don't have to tell you the implications of that are enormous. The federal government's not just a big player in higher education anymore at that stage. They are the player. They call the shots. And that means an awful lot in terms of what these universities do, how they do it, who they serve and what kind of debates that we have going on. It's a litany of issues that we need to be grappling with now because we are already starting down that path.
2: And don't kid yourself. Colleges and universities are winning big time. I mean, They have massive endowments sure. uh, in some cases in the tens of billions of dollars. Uh, there are those who argue, hey, you want to help out your students? You can do that. The taxpayers shouldn't be on the hook to do that. Brian, as always, we appreciate your time today.
0: You bet, Kevin. Thanks.
3: When former President Trump ended the U.S. role in an Iran nuclear deal negotiated by his predecessor, he said the agreement was one-sided, that it did not bring calm and did not bring peace. This week, that deal is closer to being back on than it has been since the U.S. abandoned the pact. U.S. and European diplomats have been trading proposals with Iranian negotiators on resuming an agreement designed to curb Iran's uranium enrichment program. In exchange, U.S. and U.N. sanctions on a wide array of Iranian sectors would be lifted. The debate here in Washington is much the same as it was when the first Iran deal was being negotiated by the Obama administration in 2015. Republicans and some Democrats say concessions of any kind to Iran is dangerous. And key U.S. partners in the region, like Israel's prime minister, are urging President Biden to walk away from a potential restart. And to be clear, there is no deal yet.
1: Well, I learned a long time ago that it feels like you're very close to a deal. And there are a lot of very tough issues at the end of these negotiations.
3: Marie Harf was the State Department spokesperson in 2015 when the original Iran nuclear deal was brokered. She's now a Fox News contributor.
1: Both sides want to get uh, everything they can out of these negotiations. So I think but I, I have the sense that that we could see a deal certainly in the coming weeks.
3: The contours would have to be different than they were um, when uh, the Kerry team, the the Biden, the the Obama administration first negotiated, right? Because now we've had, what, three years of of Iran resuming its its uh, its nuclear proliferation, haven't we?
1: We have. And it is absolutely true that Iran's nuclear program uh, is much farther along today than they were at the end of the Obama administration, and certainly than they were um, when Donald Trump pulled out of the deal. So I think you're gonna hear a lot of people talking about that if if we do get a new deal and saying, look, Iran's program was halted, rolled back, and significantly diminished under the previous deal. It's only because Donald Trump pulled out of the deal that they were able to race uh, their nuclear program forward.
3: But whether or not that's but but whether or not that's the case, the idea that they're much closer now to a nuclear, what's the incentive then for the U.S.? I mean, it it would appear to me that Iran would have an awful lot more leverage in this situation
1: to to talk a little bit about what the deal might look like. I'm not sure how different it will actually look than the deal that my team, the team that I was a part of, got done in 2015 because the outlines of that deal still hold that Iran's nuclear program is severely constrained with monitoring, verification, inspectors crawling all over it. And in exchange for that, they get sanctions relief from the UN and from the US. I think that either we will get back into basically the same deal or it will be something that looks very similar. The US has a lot to gain from this because Iran's nuclear program is unconstrained today. That under the deal, uh, however imperfect it was, their program was constrained, and we, we knew what was going on there. Today, there are no constraints on it because the U.S. walked away from it, and Iran took that opportunity to race forward. So we have a lot to get out of it by, by uh, rolling back Iran's nuclear program, and they really want sanctions relief. So the contours are still the same as they were in 2015, but a lot of time has passed, and so it will be interesting to see what's different and what's the same.
3: The sanctions relief, though, is, is can't that be problematic because it's not as if our only concern with Iran is, is its nuclear program. They have proxies in Syria. The, the Biden administration, the president just this week, uh, authorized airstrikes uh, against Iranian proxies in in Syria. Uh, why would the U.S. then ever agree to, to lift these sanctions that that are having an impact on its economy and its military on, on its uh, general governance?
1: Well, The sanctions we lifted in 2015 were related to the nuclear program in large part. We kept on sanctions related to support for terrorism, to their human rights abuses, to their support for proxies in places like Syria. A lot of those sanctions stayed on the books even when the nuclear deal was in place. I don't know what sanctions will be lifted under this new deal, but I have a feeling that uh, many of them will look very much like it did before. They will be the ones that punished Iran over their nuclear activities and I, I know the Biden administration will keep whatever tools they need to punish Iran for all those other things that you mentioned. Just this week, as you said, striking uh, Iranian-backed militia in, uh, in Syria, they're going to keep doing things like that, even if they take off nuclear sanctions. And look, that's always been the deal, right? Iran's not just going to give up their program for nothing. The deal on the nuclear sanctions was always that we put them in place to pressure them at the negotiating table to get a deal. And if we get one, that's that's the game here. Right.
3: Well, is it? Because why limit it to to the nuclear avenue? Right. As I said, there were other threats that Iran poses. Why not say, listen, you have to stop targeting U.S. interests. You have to release these detained Americans. Um, I'm sure there are other issues with with Iran that the U.S. has.
1: Many issues. (laughs) Uh, I think two things. First, all of those other issues would be made so much worse if Iran had a nuclear weapon. And because that is so dangerous, and because they are so much closer since uh, the U.S. pulled out of the deal, we have to deal with that first. And Iran's missile program, targeting of of U.S. interests, all of those things you mentioned are incredibly important and would be a thousand times worse if there was a nuclear weapon backing that up. So I think that we need to take the nuclear weapon off the table, at the same time keep pushing on these other things, punishing them for their behavior in these other areas, And look, when we implemented the deal in 2016, at the beginning of 2016, we also got a number of U.S. hostages out, including Jason Rezan, the Washington Post reporter, and several others. So I have a feeling those conversations are also going on, but we have to take care of the nuclear issue. That one's hard enough on its own, quite frankly.
3: Is Iran an honest broker
1: here? Uh, I don't think anything in this deal ever has been or ever will be based on trust or taking the Iranians at their word. It was always based on cameras that looked at the facilities, human inspectors that were on the ground, uh, people crawling all over their program, making sure they were doing what they said they were doing. At the same time, also the U.S. maintains, U.S. and our partners maintain huge intelligence capabilities to know what's going on in addition to all those other things. So it's not about trust, it's not about honesty. Um, it is about putting in place a situation where we are confident we know what's going on in Iran's nuclear program and that they cannot get a nuclear weapon. And, you know, you make deals with your enemies, not with your friends. There's there's not a lot of reasons to negotiate with our friends over things like this. You have to see, like we did with the Soviet Union, for example, how you can get some verifiable agreement here.
3: Should the U.S. keep a a military option and, and be clear about what that military option looks like?
1: Always, always. And I remember President Obama saying very clearly that we had developed specific capabilities that could take out Iran's underground nuclear facilities and that we would use them. But to be very clear, and the Iranians know that. I think they, they know that. But to be clear, uh, that would not destroy the program forever. Iran's program is too uh, widespread. It's too advanced. It would definitely set them back. And I have no doubt that President Biden would order that if it was the only option it's not the best option it's not the most durable option and it has the potential to uh, ignite a wider conflict in the Middle East, which none of us want.
3: In 2015, when uh, the the contours were first brought about on the Iran deal, there was not support for it in Congress. And it wasn't just from Republicans. There were an awful lot of Democrats who did not support the deal. How strong or lasting can any deal like this be?
1: Well, in 2015, I was very involved in that congressional (laughs) negotiation. And actually, Democrats stayed together. We lost very few members in the House. We only lost three members of the Senate. And because Democrats by talking with people like Ernie Moniz, a nuclear scientist who who explained all the different pieces of this, by really diving into the details, um, we actually didn't have to to do crazy things like presidential vetoes. Um, Congress, uh, the opponents of the deal were not able to get enough support to stop it from being implemented. And that was because of a lot of really hard work by experts saying, you may not love the Iranians, this is why this is a good deal. And I think, uh, I think today, if you go to Congress and you say, here's the deal, here's what's in it, and here are the alternatives. The alternative is not some magical unicorn rainbow deal that has everything any of us ever wanted. The alternative is no deal. Or the alternative is military conflict. When you make it that stark, I actually think, um, I think more people eventually come around to supporting it. The problem, as you mentioned, is if it's not a treaty, Any president Mm -hmm. can just overturn it. And the fact that Donald Trump walked away from it, I have been told by friends who are still on the negotiating team, has been used against us by the Iranians. They say the U.S. can't be trusted. You don't uphold your international obligations. And look, nobody's taking the Iranian side here. Right. Um, But it, it is difficult when in our system, any president can just rip it up. And, uh, and pull us out of an international agreement that we signed on to. That is hard. And I think that's been challenging in these negotiations.
3: Why not go for a treaty then?
1: Um, we couldn't get the, uh, the international, I forget the exact title, disability treaty ratified by the Congress when Bob Dole went onto the congressional floor in a wheelchair. So I, I use that to illustrate the fact that Congress is so broken and so polarized that they can't even pass treaties on incredibly non-controversial things like protecting disabled people. So I think that there is, that's not a cop-out. It is, uh, Congress is not doing its job on many, many, many issues. And I think that this issue is too important, quite frankly, to uh, fail because Congress cannot look at any issue, particularly involving Iran, in any sort of um, rational, nonpartisan way.
3: What assurances should the Biden administration be making to Israel, to Saudi Arabia? Both uh, governments that did not like the first deal, um, I think, have already spoken out against what appears to be emerging from this second deal.
1: What's been so interesting is there are a number of Israeli security officials who publicly said, since the deal fell apart after Trump pulled out, that they in hindsight, wish that we hadn't destroyed the deal, that they didn't love it, they didn't think it was perfect, but now they've seen the alternative, right? And that's actually to some benefit here. We saw what Iran's program was like under the deal and we saw how much they could progress it without the deal. And there are a number of Israelis who've said, look, we'll take the deal if those are the options. So I I am sure the administration is working very hard with the Israelis particularly and the Gulf states to assure them that we will give them any Uh, continue to give them any support to protect against iran we know iran is a threat to them and we have everything from iron dome systems we had you know to everything we've given the gulf states in terms of security assistance it's it's a it's a big priority and i'm sure that they're talking to those countries right now because we all remember when bb netanyahu came to congress and Mm -hmm. lobbied against it on the floor of the house and i don't think anyone wants to see something like that again
3: Let me finish with the politics of it, because I know you work in that world as well. If this is something that is widely unpopular or or at least from a majority standpoint, unpopular, why is it worth pursuing from a foreign policy standpoint if it is going to be unpopular in in the context of domestic politics?
1: Well, I think it's the right thing to do. I think that letting Iran get a nuclear weapon without trying to stop it short of war is a really important thing. And it's on the administration to make that case. It's on them to say, do you want to go back to war in the Middle East? We're getting out of wars. We're not starting new ones. And here's why it would be so dangerous to do that. So the administration has a job to to do in that realm. But look, I think these midterms are going to be about the economy and inflation and women's health and rights uh, and, and sort of all of those other issues we've talked about that you've talked about. Um, I think this is probably not in anyone's top 10 or 15, uh, you know, issues they vote on. They will vote on this November, but the administration has to make the case for why this is a good deal. I'm confident they can, but you know, with all of the other headwinds going on, the Biden administration and and the democratic Congress passing the inflation reduction act, passing the chips bill, passing the veterans healthcare bill, the Biden administration feels like they have a record that Democrats and Congress can run on this November. And you're seeing the numbers start going in Democrats' directions. The momentum is on the Democrat side, especially with the very extreme Republican candidates. And so I think that this is the right thing to do from a policy perspective. And I think politically, Democrats feel OK today.
3: So uh, we'll end it where we sort of began it, right? This sort of uh, how likely, unlikely is an <laughs> Iran nuclear deal, right? I mean, do you is, is it better or worse than 50-50? I mean, it really sounds like these conversations in the last couple of weeks have hit... Um uh, maybe new momentum, is that the right word, or, or at least a, a pretty critical stage? Sort of a, a take it or it's sort of a take it or leave it phase of, of these talks.
1: Absolutely. I think the momentum is in the direction of a deal. I think it's definitely better than 50-50. And I think we could see one in the next few weeks. Don't quote me on it. No <laughs> one go bet on that um in Vegas. But I think um I think that everyone involved in the negotiations understands that every day we don't have a deal in place. Iran gets closer to a nuclear weapon. And that's an unacceptable outcome. And so I think we could see one sooner rather than later. And when we do, we'll come back and talk about it and dig into all the details together.
3: We will do that, Marie. I appreciate it as always. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington the general election midterm field is almost set with new projections about the size of a red wave jessica rosenthal will chat about that and a new member of our fox news radio team ryan schmelz reports on the withdrawal from afghanistan one year later until then i'm jared Halpern. thanks for listening to the fox news rundown from washington